Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Hey men, good morning. How are you? Well, it is a joy to be here, and in just a moment I'm going to introduce our guest speaker for this morning. As, you, as I mentioned last week, we have a, a dear brother that is joining us all the way from South Africa, who I'll, I will introduce in just a moment. But before I do that, I just want to say thank you to all of you that participated, served, in some way helped with our vacation Bible school. In fact, this was our first vacation Bible school that we did last week, Monday through Friday. Robert Ward and Holly Farmer and the Hawks did a wonderful job, along with a whole bunch of volunteers putting on this VBS. Uh, Lord willing, there will be lots of fruit throughout the coming weeks and months and years through the ministry of the Word that happened. One other little thing, we moved all of the chairs out of here and then cleaned the carpet um, while all of the chairs were out on Friday. Um, But we noticed all of the coffee drinkers, or maybe I should better say all of the coffee spillers, sort of sit over in this section over here. So just this section over here, you're doing a wonderful job with your coffee. This section over here, just let that hit you as... The Lord would have it. We're watching you. Let me just put it to you that way. (laughs) Well, this morning Reynolds prayed for Gareth Franks, our missionary partner and dear friend in India. Gareth was with us a few months ago, and you know the history of our connection with Gareth. We're in part of a, a network of churches called the Nine Marks Network that we are very connected to. It is a ministry that started out of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. That is a network of churches, like-minded churches. And we have a friend up in the Boston area who pastors the Nine Marks Church there who has a young lady who's a missionary in India serving with the Franks and sent out an email to all of the Nine Marks churches in America asking if, this was several years ago, if there was a young man that could... Uh, go and be an interim pastor for this missionary from South Africa who had planted a church in India. If, if a young man could go serve as an interim pastor while this pastor in India went back home to South Africa on furlough. Uh, we were the only church to respond, and we said, we've got a young man named Logan. And Logan went and served in India for about six months and did a wonderful job there serving the church and that began a, a really a partnership and a, a dear friendship that has developed between us and the church there in India and that missionary family, Gareth and, and Carrie Franks. Well, Gareth was able to visit us a few months ago, and he said, well, hey, listen, my pastor from South Africa is actually going to be in the States in July and uh, would love for you to meet him. And I said, well, let's have him come down and preach. And so, uh, so it is our joy to have Doug Van Meter with us this morning. Now, as I mentioned to you last week, I know you're excited about a South African accent, but Doug is actually an American. He was born and raised in the Cincinnati area, and he and his wife left to be missionaries in South Africa uh, all the way back in the late 80s, early 90s. They planted a church there in South Africa and then moved to another church where he kind of moved from a missionary to a really a permanent pastor and has been pastoring Brackenhurst uh, Baptist Church in the Johannesburg area since the early 90s. And this is the home church that Gareth 
and Carrie Franks were sent out to as missionaries to India. And it's been a real joy to hear from Gareth how influential Doug has been on his life and what a missions mobilizing church that Brackenhurst Baptist Church is. Doug has uh, his wife and five daughters. Now his wife was with him on his sabbatical here visiting family. She has uh, just returned to South Africa, so she's not here with us this morning. But Doug has five daughters uh, there in South Africa, and he is privileged to have his mother and two sisters that are joining him. They live in the Woodstock area here uh, north of Atlanta, and it is our joy to hear from a dear brother who we are grateful he's knit our hearts together, and we're looking forward to years of friendship and partnership in the gospel. So would you please join me in welcoming Pastor Doug Van Meter to our pulpit. Thanks, Brad. Thank you. Thank you. Huyamora. That means good morning, good morning in Afrikaans, and that's as close as I come to having an accent. <laughs> I really am thrilled to be here this morning and to have uh, met your pastor this morning, have talked to him yesterday. And just to be here with the church today, seeing Gareth's picture. Um, Knowing of your connection to him is just really, my heart uh, overflows today with, uh, with gratitude to God for your partnership with Gareth. Gareth, uh, when I first met Gareth, he was 18 years of age. He was actually the first person I discipled at the Brackenhurst Baptist Church. And to see him now uh, serving the Lord in, in India and the partnership that God has created uh, in his wonderful providence just, just really thrills me. And just speaking to Brad about the many connections that we have, having never met each other before, but it's just amazing the network that God is putting together. So thank you as a congregation for supporting our missionary uh, from South Africa. And thank you for the, the ministry recently. Uh, you had a team that was there. I actually was in India at the same time, but we missed each other because they had a, a flight problem. Um, I know of Logan being there. And I remember when Gareth sent that appeal out for somebody to come and to, uh, to take over the church while he was gone. And when Logan contacted him and Gareth contacted your church and found out more about you, it just seemed like a wonderful fit. So thank you so much for that. Um, it is a joy to be here. As um, Brad said, I do have five daughters. I have um, my oldest and my youngest are married. And uh, my three in the middle children, uh, 24, 26, and 28, they need husbands. <laughs> and, and I hope that this is not online and they don't hear this, but <clears throat> they are beautiful. They are gifted. Most importantly, they love the Lord. So see me after the service. <laughs> I could probably be persuaded to show you some pictures as well. Also, three grandchildren, and I'll show you their pictures as well. If you would join me this morning in Acts chapter 11, I want to speak on a theme that I thought would be very appropriate for Cross Point Church in light of the connection with Gareth and just knowing something of the heart of this church for the Great Commission. And we certainly, our church, Brackenhurst Baptist Church in Johannesburg, and your church share this this passion for the Great Commission. And I want to today just speak about 
a world-impacting church. Uh, What does a world-impacting church look like? Uh, What are the roots of it? And I can't think of a a model church better than the church at Antioch for that. This is a a church that uh, I have sought for 23 years to help Brackenhurst Baptist Church to be and following this pattern of Acts chapter 11. We're very familiar with Acts chapter 13, where we read about the first missionaries being sent out by this church. And in Acts 13, we read these words, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, and he names them, and two of those are Barnabas and Saul. Verse 2 says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, The Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and they they sent them away. They released them. And we're familiar with this. But oftentimes we, we rush to Acts chapter 13 for our understanding of the church and missions. And it's a great place to go. But I want to suggest that we need to understand where this church came from before it sent out its first missionaries. And that brings our attention to Acts chapter 11 in verse 19. I'm reading from the New King James Version. It's very similar to the ESV. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, that is modern-day Lebanon, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, that's modern-day Libya, who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, or or the Greeks, or the Greek-speaking Jews, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God He was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. Literally, the word means to hunt for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And by the way, at this point in history, the church is anywhere from 10 to 14 years uh, old since it started in Pentecost, uh, in Acts chapter 2. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today for this Lord's Day. Thank you that we've sung about Jesus Christ who paid it all and who died for our sins and who rose again. Thank you that the Lord Jesus is at your right hand, interceding for us even now. Thank you for this mission that you have given to us. And thank you that you have not left us in the dark. You've given to us your inspired word. And I pray today, Lord, that you would feed us from the scriptures. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would point us to truth. 
that you would point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we leave here today more committed than ever to live for him and to speak of him and to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The local church, missions and missionaries, is, is, is obviously for this church not something that's just theoretical. Uh, it is something that is real. I, I haven't been here long today, but just meeting some of the brothers and speaking to you and hearing about your missions trips and knowing the history of this church, the Great Commission is, is a passion of this church, and so it should be for every church. Uh, if a local church does not get its uh, marching orders from the Lord and from His Word, it's, it's going to be like a ship without a rudder. There's going to be a lot of activity, but it's never going to reach its, its destination. In fact, if a church ignores God's Word in this area, oftentimes it ends up like a shipwreck. The same is true for our church in South Africa. It's not, missions is not something that is merely theoretical. It's not merely a, a map on the wall where we put dots and say, this is where we have missionaries. Uh, it is what we are all about. It was a church that was started by uh, a missionary many, many years ago. It's a church that has sent out missionaries uh, over the past 25 years to different parts of the world. Uh, missions is something that's very special to me because I was in a church that, that emphasized missions. And, and in fact, at one point, we had some 20, 25 families from the church I grew up in that were sent out by our congregation as missionaries. Uh, today, as I speak... Uh, I have a son-in-law and daughter, and my three grandkids are living in India, and they've joined the Franks, uh, where Tommy is alongside of Gareth as a missionary. So missions is, is my heartbeat. It's your heartbeat, and it needs to be that way. And today, I, I'm not going to teach you anything new, but I want to remind us where missionaries come from. Missionaries don't just drop out of thin air. At least, they shouldn't. Missionaries should be coming from local churches, but they come from a certain kind of local church, if those missionaries are going to go and reproduce the way they should on the mission field. And that's why I love the church at Antioch. This church is a, is a model church for us. It is a church that shows us the kind of church we need to be if we will impact the world. Humanly speaking, humanly speaking, you and I are here today, humanly speaking, there's a church here today in Columbus because of the church at Antioch. The church at Antioch was the first church in history that deliberately sent out cross-cultural missionaries. It is a church that you can trace, as it were, uh, missions throughout history all the way back to this church. As Saul and Barnabas were sent out, and as they began to plant churches, and those churches began to send out missionaries, humanly speaking, we're connected to the church at Antioch. This city of Antioch was a city of about a half a million people. Historians tell us that at one point, 100,000 Antiochans were members of this church. The church at Antioch existed for some 250 years, and, and, it, and it had uh, wonderful men of God like Ignatius and Theodoret and Chrysostom, who were pastors or elders at this church. It was really a world-impacting church. But this didn't happen overnight. It happened over... Many, many years of faithfulness to the Word of God. And I sense that Cross Point Church is a church that desires and is, in a real sense, a world-impacting church. And that's the kind of church I want to pastor. So I want to show you three fundamental things about a church 
that will impact the world. And if we have time, my, my family warned me today not to preach too long. I had them print out my sermon yesterday, and they were very nervous when they saw all the pages. But Brad said, you meet all day long. Is that right? That's what we do in Africa, right? Okay, I won't be that long. But I want to give you three things about this church, and then if we have time, talk about the kind of missionaries that came from this church. If a church is going to be a world-impacting church, it must be a well-founded church. It must be a well-founded church, and we see that in verses 19 to 21. When I say well-founded, what I mean is it must be founded on the Lord Jesus Christ. That must be its foundation. It says in verse 19, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen. Acts 11 picks up where Acts chapter 8 verse 4 leaves off. Stephen, of course, is martyred. And after he is martyred, Saul leads the, those in Jerusalem with a great persecution upon the church. And, 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 and the Bible tells us in those first four verses that the church was scattered. Everyone was scattered. It's, it's exaggerated language, but it's telling us that the, church, that the members of this church, most of them were scattered abroad except for the apostles. The apostles remained in Jerusalem, but this first church that was planted in Jerusalem, most of the members were forced to leave because of the persecution. And that's where Acts 11.19 picks up. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled to Phoenicia and to Cyprus and as far as Antioch. That was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, which was a long, long distance in those days. And here are these members of the church that have followed the Lord Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, they've been born again. They're members of this church. Persecution breaks out, and they're forced to flee. And many of them go as far as 300 miles north. But notice what they're doing. As they travel, they are preaching the word. They are preaching the word. The word preaching here might be translated speaking. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word that sometimes can mean, some, some translate it as gossiping the word of God. They're going forth and then they are speaking the word of God. Now, there's a bit of a problem here because they're still very, very ethnocentric. The Bible says that they were speaking the word to no one but to the Jews only. That was kind of all they knew at that point. It was a church in Jerusalem made up of Jews predominantly. There were some Hellenized people, those who spoke Greek but were Jewish, Barnabas was one of those. But they go forth and they don't quite understand the great commission that they're to be making disciples of all the nations, of all the people groups, of all the ethnos. And so they go forth and they are speaking the word to number the Jews only. And I don't want to be critical of that at this point. I want to make a point that they're going forth and they're speaking the gospel. It goes on and he says in verse 20, but some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, that's Libya, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, that is either the Greek-speaking Jews or it's Gentiles, we don't know for sure, preaching, and here we have a stronger word, we get a word evangelism from it, preaching, speaking the good news concerning the Lord Jesus. In both cases, you have people going forth and they are speaking the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I find this very phenomenal because these people have probably just lost everything. In Jerusalem. 
They have been persecuted. They have been scattered. Many have left family. They've left their homes. They are unemployed. And they go forth north, and what they are preaching and what they are speaking, they're not complaining. They're telling people about the Lord. Imagine this. They meet somebody in Antioch, and they say, where are you from? I'm from Jerusalem. Why are you doing here? What are you doing here? Well, I have something. It's amazing why I'm here. I just lost everything. My family's disowned me, and I've lost my house, and I've lost my job. And they think that they're nuts because they're saying it with a smile. And they're going forth, and they're not complaining. What they're doing is they're speaking about the one who was the cause of them losing everything. What they are doing is they are taking up the cross and following the Lord Jesus Christ. This church was founded by those who loved the Lord Jesus Christ. They were saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they loved him. They were willing to take up the cross and to endure all for him. That's the foundation of this church. And by the way, they're not the apostles. The, the, the text in Acts 8 makes it very clear. The apostles are in Jerusalem. These are, it's a terrible word, but these are laymen. These are not pastors. These are not professionals. These are the church members who are so grounded in their love for Christ, they go forth and they are speaking of him. Churches that have an impact on the world are those who they they get the gospel. They treasure the Lord Jesus Christ. They are founded on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they go forth and they preach the word, they speak the word, some are only speaking to the Jews, but there are others who get it. They understand Matthew 28. They were to disciple all the people groups, the, the, the disciple all ethnicities. They get that, and so they preach the Lord Jesus Christ. They share the good news of him. And what happens in verse 21 as they do that? And the hand of the Lord was with them. I love that. That's Old Testament phraseology. In the Old Testament, the hand of the Lord being on someone was either a sign of judgment or a sign of blessing. Obviously, here it's blessing. The hand of the Lord was with them. And what happened? A great number believed and turned to the Lord. Five times in verses 19 to 24, you find the word Lord. Jesus Christ, 300 times in the New Testament, is referred referred to as the Lord Jesus, or as the Lord, or as the Lord Christ. He is Lord. You know, the Great Commission doesn't really begin in Matthew 28, 19, where where the Bible says, teach all nations, go and teach all nations. It actually begins in verse 18, where Jesus says, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. The only one who can claim to have all authority is God. And Jesus was saying after the resurrection to his doubting disciples, I am Lord, so you go and you teach this to all the nations. You disciple them. The lordship of Christ is essential if a church will be world-impacting, where we submit to him in all realms of life. This church understood this. It was founded on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a group who understood about the, the fact that all peoples need to hear the gospel. I moved to South Africa in 1990. Just uh, three months, I was telling Brad, after Nelson Mandela was released from prison. 
And so I've been there through a very, very interesting time in South Africa's history. And of course, before I, before I moved there, they had this horrible set of laws called apartheid, which means separateness, instituted in 1948. And in South Africa, that meant that white people lived in one neighborhood, and black people lived in another neighborhood, and Indian people lived in another neighborhood. There was this division throughout the country. And even churches were divided like that. I remember speaking to an elder from a, a large church in our city, and he was telling me that their philosophy was that they believed the gospel was for everybody, but each church should have its own racial makeup. That is a complete denial of the Great Commission. These, some of these people were confused about the gospel, but, but there were some others, some from Cyprus and some from Libya. They got the big picture. And they began to preach the gospel to all peoples because they understood the lordship of Jesus Christ, that he is Lord over all of us, and he brings us together into one person in the church. I'm speaking in Zambia next month at a conference, and I've been asked to speak on the issue of, of racism. And, and, and that's a, a huge problem in South Africa. We're still reeling from the effects of that. And I've been in America now long enough to see that there's still problems here as well. But it's interesting, a friend of mine, Conrad Mbewe, was saying to me once, he's a pastor in Lusaka, Zambia, he said to me once, he said, you know, Doug, honestly, he said, in Zambia, we're colorblind. He said, he said, he said in, in our country, he said, really, he said, it doesn't make that much of a difference. And I thought, isn't that a glorious way to be? You know, God loves diversity. He loves diversity. Uh, I have three grandchildren, and um, yesterday, I got a message from my daughter. It was two years ago yesterday that she and my son-in-law adopted their second child, Logan. His name is Logan. And uh, she was telling me that they were in Mumbai recently. And she said, Dad, I was so excited. She said, because we saw two black people. He said, because Logan is an African. And, and Allison said, you know, it's really important to me that Logan understands he belongs to us, but he also has a heritage there's an ethnicity there. There's nothing wrong with that. God has made people different. There are different, different ethnicities. If I understand Revelation right, one day we're all going to be around the throne of God, worshiping God from every kindred and every tribe and every tongue. God loves diversity. I believe that diversity will last throughout eternity. Unity does not mean uniformity. God loves diversity. But God loves diversity, and he wants us to be reaching people, not, not of, our, of our own kilt and kin, as they say, but reaching all peoples. The church should reflect that. Our, our neighborhood, when I moved there, was, was designated as, a, and there are those laws, all white people. But over the years, those laws have fallen away, thankfully, and our community is now more mixed racially, and our, our church um, reflects that. And our church reflects that. It hasn't always been easy. But it's become easier as we've understood more and more of the lordship of Christ. And we see our own sinfulness. And that fundamentally we're all the same. And we all need the Savior. Some of these understood that. This church was well founded. It was founded on Christ. They were committed to his lordship. But secondly, it was well grounded. It was grounded in Christ. Look at verse 20. Two, then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. And he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart 
they would continue, that they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people, once again, were added to the Lord. I love this section of this. The church at Jerusalem hears, the apostles and whatever believers were there, they hear about something's happening 300 miles north of us. And it sounds like it's a work of God. We're going to send Barnabas. Very wise move. He was from Cyprus. We know from Acts chapter 4. He was a Hellenized Jew. And they send this man who understands something about being cross-cultural. And they send him north, and he goes there and to, to check things out. Is this, is this really a work of God? And I, and I love it. He goes there, and it says, when he had seen the grace of God, he was glad. What does that mean? Did it mean that he saw their doctrinal statement and said, these people hold to the doctrines of grace? I don't think it was that. He saw the grace of God. What that means is this. When he went to Antioch, he saw the same thing there that he'd seen in this church back in Jerusalem. He saw the results of the grace of God. He saw Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, where people were, were in fellowship together, where people were devoting themselves continually to the apostles' doctrine and to prayer and to the, and to, to, to the Lord's table, and to the fellowship of the saints. They, 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 he saw the grace of God, and he realized this is the real deal. What I love is this. He exhorts them. He exhorts them to continue with the Lord, to literally to cleave to the Lord. He's spending time with them. He's grounding them in the Word of God. And as he grounds them further and further in the Word of God, as, much, as this son of encouragement encourages them in the Lord and grounds them in that, the Lord begins to bless. And more and more people are added to the Lord. The church is growing. Now, consider this, that here's this handful of people to begin with. They're converted. Barnabas begins to invest time in them and teach them the word of God. He's encouraging them to cleave to Christ. And as he does that, the church begins to grow. And the church begins to grow in a massive way, apparently, because many people were added to the Lord. And Barnabas does something in verse 25 that sounds strange. The church is growing and he leaves. But why did he leave? Because Barnabas realized this is too big for one man. And he goes to Tarsus and literally hunts for Saul. Saul is a very hesitant man, apparently. He's a little bit nervous, perhaps, about going into the ministry. He spent three and a half years being instructed by the Lord. And, 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 and Barnabas goes and he finds him and he brings him back. He says, I can't handle this by myself. And for a whole year, we learn then in verse 26, a whole year they assembled with the church and they taught a great many people. This church was founded on the Lord Jesus Christ. This church was grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would suggest to you that it's because of the depth of this church that in chapter 13, this church has a great breadth. I remember where I was about 30 years ago. I was sitting outside of a post office in Milford, Ohio, in Goshen, Ohio, little town. And I was listening to a guy on the radio I'd never heard of before. His name was John MacArthur. 
Now, I was listening to this, this interview that he was being, he, he was, uh, uh, someone from the Los Angeles Times was interviewing him. And this man from the Los Angeles Times said, you know, Dr. MacArthur, when you came to this church, it was running a few hundred. Did you ever think that your church would be, be of, of 10,000 and you'd have a worldwide ministry? And he said, no, not really. He said, did you ever think you would build a church like this? And he said, no. He said, I read in the Bible one day that Christ said he would build his church. And frankly, I didn't want to compete against him. <laughs> and I said, how do you explain the ministry? He said, I explained it by the sovereignty of God. He said, but there's one principle I've learned is this. If you take care of the depth of your ministry, God takes care of the breadth of your ministry. These believers were founded on the Lord Jesus Christ. They were founded on the gospel, but they were continually grounded in the gospel by men like Barnabas and Saul who spent a whole year probably daily teaching the word of God to these people and grounding them. Many years ago, uh, 1989, I lived in Australia for about 15 months and I was pastoring a church there. And uh, I, I met a man one day by the name of Graham Goldsworthy. Some of you may have read some of his books. And I had a meeting with him in his office. I was with another friend, and, and, and we sat down with this man. I'll never forget his office. It looked like a library. He had thousands of volumes. And the more he talked, I realized I was in the presence of a, of a real academia. And I, and I said to Graham Goldsworthy, I said to him, Sir, when you are asked to preach at other churches, what kind of things do you preach? What do you teach? And remember, this was a long time ago. He said to me, young man, I had dark hair back then. He said, he looked at me and he said, well, young man, I preach the gospel. I teach the gospel. I expected him to give me some big, deep answer of what he taught. And then he said, turn to your Bible in Romans chapter 1. And he helped me to understand the first five verses that the gospel is concerning God's son. And he said, young man, you never outgrow the gospel. We had Jerry Bridges in our church many years ago. Jerry's with the Lord now. And he was teaching on a Wednesday night in our church. And he made the comment. He said, believers, you need to learn, you need to, learn to daily preach the gospel to yourself. Tim Keller has said that the, the, the Christian life is not, the a, is not the ABCs, or the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to the Z. Sorry, the A to the Z of the Christian life. And he's so right. A church that's going to impact the world must always be grounded in the gospel. And it's grounded in the gospel by faithful, expository teaching of God's word from cover to cover. It's all about the gospel. That has helped me so much in my ministry. So many fads going around. And I've seen all those fads have a shelf life, by the way. And this promises you church growth and all of that. I just have learned, I don't pay any attention to that stuff. The bottom line is teaching the gospel, grounding people in the gospel of God. And as they're grounded in the gospel and they love Christ increasingly, then they're willing to sacrifice more for him. This church is well-founded. It was founded on Christ. It was well-grounded. It was grounded in Christ. And thirdly, it was a well-rounded, a well-balanced church. These men, Barnabas and Saul, they, they taught these disciples for a whole year. And it says in verse 26, the disciples were first, for the first time, called Christians in Antioch. If Pentecost 
The original Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, had, was 10 or 14 years earlier. That's a long time before the word Christian was ever used. They were simply called those of the way, or followers of Jesus, or disciples. But now they are called Christians. The word Christian that is so prevalent in our um, world, Christian world today, it was only used three times in the Bible. The word Christian speaks of one who is Christ-like. Most believe that Christian was, was a taunt by the, the enemies of the gospel. Oh, you're like that Christ fella. You're just like him. What a wonderful compliment. For the first time, they're called Christians. As they're grounded in the Word of God, there's a connection here. They're founded on the gospel, on Christ. And they're further grounded in the gospel. They're grounded in Christ. And increasingly, they look more like Christ. And now they're called Christians. But whenever you begin to grow in Christ, you're going to be tested. And that's what we see in verses 27 to 30. These prophets come from Jerusalem. According to Acts chapter 2, the church was, was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the, and the prophets, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And so these prophets come from Jerusalem, perhaps to, to teach them further and to ground them further in the Lord. But as they come there, there's a man by the name of Agabus who says, there's going to be a great famine upon the whole world. The word, the Greek word here for world is used consistently in the New Testament to speak of what we would call the Roman Empire. And so Agabus says there's going to be a great famine, and we're told that it does come to pass just in a couple of years in the reign of Claudius Caesar. Several years ago, about 1994, when we began to have our first democratic elections in South Africa, there was a lot of turmoil in the country. It became very, there were assassinations, there was lots of danger. And there was a, a right-wing group that was threatening to blow up all the power plants just before the election. And so when we heard about this possible calamity, uh, most of us went to the grocery stores and we stocked up. We bought a, my wife and I bought a, a little gas camping stove, uh, stove in case of that. And for some dumb reason, we bought a deep freeze. We still laugh about that. I don't know what we were thinking. And we were, we were buying baked beans for eternity. And we were hearing about these, and so we were stockpiling. I suppose there's nothing wrong with that, but it's an amazing story here. That when these prophets come from Jerusalem and say there's going to be a famine throughout the entire world, look at their response in verse 29. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Now think about that. Antioch was a part of the Roman Empire. This great famine was going to affect Antioch as well, but they're not thinking about themselves. They're thinking of others. They're thinking of those in Jerusalem who are going to be suffering. They're thinking of their brothers and sisters down there, and they're saying, you know what? There's going to be a great famine, and we're all going to suffer. Let's help others. Is that not a beautiful picture of being Christ-like? We see the needs of others, and we're willing to sacrifice to meet their needs. This church was well-balanced. It was a church that walked worthy of the Lord. Ephesians 4 tells us to walk worthy of the Lord to all-pleasing. And that little phrase, to walk worthy, 
comes from a, a, a wonderful picture of a, of a scale that they used in those days. And you would, you would I just, in fact, we just saw one of these in India. We bought some mangoes. And we put the, put the, I wanted a kilogram of mangoes. So they put these little discs on that, that was a kilogram. And, and the scale went up. And they put the mangoes on. And it, once it was balanced, I don't know how accurate the kilogram weight was. But once it was balanced... He knew that we'd had enough mangoes. We talk about being, living a balanced Christian life. The balanced Christian life is when our t- walk matches our talk. These people were disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they claimed to love him. And when push came to shove, and, and they were put in this testing situation, they sacrificed for others. This church had so grown in Christ that they began to look like Christ and so therefore, they were willing to sacrifice for others, but the sacrifice doesn't end here. We pick up in chapter 13, after Paul and Barnabas go and they take this offering to the saints in Jerusalem. They come back. We don't know how long they are there, but we learn from Acts chapter 13 that the sacrifice that they exercise in Acts 11 doesn't end there. Now they're going to sacrifice in a huge way. And while they are in this church and you have this wonderful multicultural leadership, you have Barnabas, you have Simeon who was called Niger. Simeon was a a black man. Lucius of Cyrene, that's also of Libya. You had a man who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Here was a man of some political means And you had Saul, you had Barnabas, a Hellenized Jew. You had Paul, who at one time was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. If ever there was a Jew, it was was Paul. But look at this leadership, this multicultural leadership. As they are ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit says, you guys need to sacrifice again. And I want you to separate from your congregation, Barnabas and Saul. Try to imagine what that would be like. I understand that a church is not built upon a man. I understand that. And we've had too much of that in history. But the fact of the matter is, God does use individuals in the leading of a church. And can you imagine today, Brad standing up here and saying, I've heard the word and I'm going to South Africa. That's not a word from the Lord, all right? (laughs) Can you imagine how you feel? There'd be a sense of gladness, but there'd be a great sense of sadness. This church is now the two most prominent men, the men that were used in such an intense way to build this church, are being called to leave. And what does this church do? This church behaves like Christians. This church, the leadership and the church, I believe, they are praying, and then after they fasted and after they prayed, they laid their hands on them. That's, that's actually priestly language. Harkens from Leviticus and Numbers. The, it's priestly language. They, they lay their hands, as it were, on these men, and you're going to represent us, and we're going to send you out, and they send them away. I, I pastored the same church for 23 years, and we've been blessed over the years to have men raised up who have, who, have, who have become leaders in the church. And several of those over the years, God would, would, would call them and it would be confirmed by the church. 
that God wanted them to leave us and to go pastor elsewhere or to plant churches as missionaries. And every time they have left, it has been painful. It's been like losing a Saul or a Barnabas. And there are times in my more selfish moments where I think, Lord, I don't want you to have them. We need them here. And I want to hang on to them. On April the 7th this year, when we went to the airport, my wife and I and our daughters, including the three that need husbands. (laughs) We went to the airport and said goodbye to our daughter and our son-in-law and our grandkids. It was the hardest day of my life. We didn't mind the son-in-law going. (laughs) But seeing my daughter and those three grandkids leave, that was the hardest day. But I'll be honest with you, there's no regrets. God has raised them up for a purpose. My son-in-law, Tommy, left a huge mark in our church and went through an internship and he He was a great leader amongst men in our church. And we're still feeling the loss of that. But if you understand the lordship of Christ, you understand his purpose for this world, then it makes it a lot easier to let him go. My my mom's here today. She knows what that's like. 30 years ago when I left and took her grandkids, she knows what that's like. But as my father-in-law would say, oftentimes he would say into my wife's ear before we would board a plane, he is worthy. And he is worthy. A world-impacting church is a church that's going to sacrifice. Yes, we must sacrifice our monies. We must do that. Our church does that in in a large way for our context. And I'm never ashamed and never embarrassed and never hesitant to challenge our church to sacrificially send our missionaries because of the, 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 the situation in South Africa. When we send our missionaries, we, we are a hun, almost 100% of their support. There's really not many other people to lean on to get help for that. But our people understand that and they, and they give towards that sacrificially. But we also must be willing to sacrifice our men and our women and to send our members out. You know, the wonderful thing about this church is it didn't come to an end when they sent these men out. The end of chapter 14, they come back and they gather the church together and they rehearse with the church in verses 20 to 27. They rehearse with the church all that God had done with them. And they leave again. Of course, there's a bit of a split there and Paul then takes Silas. But in Acts 18, Paul and Silas return to the church at Antioch. It's still going. It's strengthening. God has raised up other leaders to build this church. For 250 years, for 250 years, the church at Antioch became a lighthouse. When we send our monies and we send our members and we sacrifice, we can trust the promise that God will supply all of our need. Don't ever be hesitant to sacrifice for the cause of Jesus Christ, which is the cause of world missions, which is the cause of making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, proclaiming the gospel of his death, burial and resurrection with a view to people being converted, being discipled, churches being planted. One day we're going to look back and say it was worth it all. And I, I, I want to be careful about this 
but I am a human and I do wrestle with these emotions. But my wife and I often say that we don't know how it's going to work out. But one day, one day, even though we've missed all these things with our daughter and our grandchildren, there's no doubt in heaven we're going to say it's worth it all. Maybe there's a big video screen where I can see all the things that our grandkids did. Without them asking for money, by the way. That's one of the best things. It's worth it. So Cross Point Church, I do thank God for you. I've sensed just coming here today, I feel at home. And by the way, when I feel at home, I preach long. I feel at home here. I think there's a, there's a one heart here. God is using you to be a world-impacting church. Continue. You are, a, you are a church that was founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're being grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're growing in Christ-likeness. And as God sends out your members, stand behind them. Lay your hands on them and say, we're with you to the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God. It's your idea. It's yours. You initiated it. Thank you for your grace in in, in choosing us from before the foundation of the world that we would be saved and be holy without blame before you in love. Thank you, God, for the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross And paid the penalty that we could never have paid. After living a life that we never could have lived. Thank you that he is risen. And thank you that he is Lord of all. He has all authority in heaven and earth. And because of that, Lord, this great commission. This is not a, a hope so project. This is certain. It's guaranteed. And one day all the people group's representation is going to be around the throne praising you. So help Cross Point Church as they continue to be faithful to Christ and His gospel and faithful to spread the message. Use them in a glorious way. And we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.